Welcome to This Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek, and I'm here with Wolfgang Lutz and Chris Beistroff. Wolfgang and Chris, glad to have you here. How are you doing? Good. Fine, thank you. And I'm going to start by mentioning what brought me to bring both of you here. Both of you are past guests, and I recommend anyone listening or watching, go back and listen to the conversations I had with both of these guests. They're both very accomplished, very dedicated and caring about our future environmental situation and so forth, uh, very accomplished in their fields. Now, as I see it, what I want to do is describe what brought me to brought you, bring you both together and then hopefully step back and facilitate. I do have some opinions here, so but I'll try to facilitate. And what I see is, is the difference is that, okay, both of you care about the environment and population and being able to project and figure out where it's going to go and use that as information for policies and how we, should, how we can behave. Now, Chris, Chris made a very simple model of population that has no demographics in it. But I think he says that, and you'll have a chance to, to correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, and both of you, that you say feedback is very important in like how the environment affects us and we affect the environment. And feedback into projections can lead to exponential growth and decay and things like that. You don't have any demographics. So I think from the perspective of a, of a demographer, it's like very missing information. But I think you're saying that there's some elements that need to be in there that aren't that you want to make sure are in there. Wolfgang is a very sophisticated demographics, and I think Chris would say doesn't include feedback enough. I think Wolfgang would say, "I well, let Wolfgang say how it, it, what the right amount." I'm not sure if it's what's the right amount or not, but I see that there's a bit of space between the two of your perspectives on how to approach projecting population. When I look at Chris's, it seems almost impossible for him to avoid projecting a population collapse very soon. When I look at Wolfgang's, it seems very difficult not to see population leveling off within by 2100 or so, and by within the next century coming down smoothly lower with very little chance of collapse. That's where I see like this gap between. So I would like to understand what the difference is, if there's reason to keep these difference different, or if there's ways to come together. Have I characterized each of your positions or views effectively? And either of you want to go first? Well, I can start saying that the, the criticism is just correct that what the conventional population projections, as they are done by most statistical officers, but also by the United Nations population a division, uh, it's sort of an extrapolation of past trends in fertility, mortality, and migration, which matter for national populations. But particularly here at the ASA, at the International Incidence for Applied Systems Analysis, where I currently serve for the scientific director, we have a 50-year history of doing uh, systems modeling. It was the limits to growth model with Daniela Meadows, who spent the first decade from 72 to 82 here at the ASA. And we've just brought out this Last week at the UN Summit on Sustainable Development, which is currently taking place, a volume that's called Systems Analysis for Sustainable Well-Being, uh, 50 years of YASA research, 14 years after the Brundtland Commission. Now, we do indeed uh, worry a lot about feedbacks, and we have, even in this new report, uh, several models. I mean, we have very simplistic models, and one of the simplest one is probably the Wonderland model by my colleague Warren Sanderson, which just consists of four or five equations. And, and then we have gradually more sophisticated models that all try to capture how 
uh, future trends in the environment, but also trends in the economy impact uh, the birth rate, the death rate, and possibly migration. Now, then we also introduced what we call multidimensional demography. So we don't only have the population structured by age, but we also consider the educational attainment distribution. And since education is so important, not only for the fertility rate and the mortality rate, because consistently more educated women have lower fertility and more educated people live longer than less educated, but also for the adaptive capacity to climate change. That's why we developed uh, these shared socioeconomic pathways or the SSP scenarios, which are now used all over the climate change community. If you go to the uh, most recent IPCC report all over the place, uh, they uh, make reference to these uh, SSP scenarios that are population scenarios by level of education and combined with economic assumptions, combined with technological assumptions. So we factor in uh, all these feedbacks. And uh, yes, uh, the death rate uh, would decline more rapidly and life expectancy would increase uh, probably uh, somewhat faster if there weren't climate change. But our results show that despite of climate change, life expectancy will still continue to increase. And uh, the peak population that we're expecting for around uh, 2070 and the following decline at the global level uh, in many individual countries we're already seeing now population decline is uh, mostly due to declining fertility. That is sort of voluntarily lower fertility. Okay, that is sort of my introductory a comment, yes, that we, we try to consist of all the whole body of research. And we had recently this uh, inquiry about more than 550 demographers from around the world assessing different arguments that would lead to assumptions about future birth rate, death rate, and migration rate in their part of the world. And that results uh, uh, combined with some time series analysis in, in our latest projections. So, Chris, how about you? Did I characterize your perspective effectively? I'm sure you could expand on it. Well, I don't know uh, if we want to uh, expand on it. I mean, we've had podcasts on from both of us already. And so I, I could tell you a snapshot of kind of what I did that was different from Wolfgang's approach so that people don't have to go back to the watch the whole podcast. But And then I, I really, I would like to ask some questions. And I really am looking forward to changes in your model, Wolfgang, that uh, you're talking about. So to see uh, if there's some way in which that's capturing the global limits effect. As you know, the work done by Limits to Growth was all centered around global limits and uh, that those are going to have an effect on population through effects on the carrying capacity. And we see in uh, in the way that biologists like myself and the way that demographers address population, you see a difference in the language we speak. We uh, biologists do talk about carrying capacity. We talk about humans as if we are limited by that carrying capacity, which is kind of an established fact among biologists that humans are a case-selected species and we're limited by a carrying capacity. So I think that's there's a, a fundamental difference in modeling there that we model more the carrying capacity than the demographics. I guess that's the, the main point here. And, and can I ask a question then? Yeah. 
Wolfgang, are there modifications that you're looking for in your model which somehow address changes in the and the carrying capacity in the future? Or is carrying capacity in the model at all? Well, I think the carrying capacity is a well-established biological concept, as you say, uh, which largely uh, applies to animals who are not uh, cognitively empowered to develop new technologies and change their environment. So that's why uh, in the social sciences, ranging from uh, very qualitative uh, sociologists to economists and, and demographers included, the uh, we really we don't think the notion of carrying capacity applies to the human species because we can change uh, our food support systems. We can, from the agricultural revolution starting, we managed to produce more food, which was throughout human history the main limiting factor. And yeah, I mean, if you go back to the, the limits to growth in the '72, the World Three model. Uh, I mean, they predicted uh, the collapse of population and a massive increase in uh, mortality and the death rate just for right now, but apocalypse has been postponed. Uh, we were able, the Green Revolution was able to feed many more people. And this is really directly linked also to the enhanced education of the populations too. And we see very clearly that villages that were at least literate they could absorb the Green Revolution better and they enhance their food uh, production capacity by a factor three or more, whereas uh, illiterate rural societies in some African parts, they uh, were not able and they are much more vulnerable to climate change-induced uh, droughts or flooding and, and, and whatever. So it is really the ability of humans um, to develop things like urban agriculture and and, and also now try at least slowly and not rapidly enough uh, to phase out of fossil energy and go to renewables. And these are all processes that are not without pain, but uh, that expand, so to say, constantly the carrying, what you call the carrying capacity. Okay. So, so my question was, does carrying capacity come up in your new models? And I gather your answer is no, they don't. Yeah. Well, then you may know the, the very nice uh, survey by uh, Joan Cohen, um, demographer and biologist, both at Columbia University, so writing a book, uh, How Many People Can the Earth Support? And he collected different estimates that ranged uh, from uh, yeah, a few hundred million to trillions of people, depending on technology. And, and they have good scientific papers uh, mm -hmm. uh, behind each of these estimates. And this just illustrates very clearly uh, to me, it, yes, at a staggered level of uh, technology, there there is a limit. So let's um, starting from that. Then let's say if there is a limit, then is it should it be included in the models? Yes, if there are reasons to assume, uh, let's say, limits uh, to food production, and then and we, but I mean, the, we've yes, lots of papers now being published that yes, climate change uh, will uh, likely result in a few tens of millions of people uh, in hunger, more hungry people. Uh, we estimate roughly, let's say, 30 million. But at the same time, general overall global increases in productivity in published papers say that we'll have a 
about uh, half a billion less people in hunger. At the moment, we have about 700 million that would decline by mid-century to about 200 million. Yes, without climate change, this decline would even be stronger. But still, even factoring in climate change, as these papers do, there uh, is uh, likely to be uh, a significant decline in the number of people who go hungry. Okay. Is that in your models? I mean, you say that there are models now predicting where hunger is going to go with climate change and without climate change. Yeah. Are you are you factoring that in now? In- well, we, I mean, we are not modeling the number of hungry people in, in this model. We uh, want to assess the effect of mortality. That is sort of the main, like, how is life expectancy uh, changing? And it has been very well established that the main uh, reason for continued declines in life expectancy is declining child mortality, which has a lot to do with clean drinking water, a decline in diarrheal disease, it has to do with uh, malaria eradication and reduction. And uh, there are now even some uh, vaccines uh, being developed against malaria. So in many of the poorest African countries, actually the reason why we had to uh, correct the projections upward, meaning higher population growth, has been the fact that child mortality declined more rapidly than anybody had hoped. It was the combined effect of uh, from the Gates Foundation to the Global Fund for uh, Malaria, Tuberculosis, and AIDS. And there's sort of a lot of investment went into helping to bring down child mortality. And since a surviving child has the same demographic effect as an additionally born child, uh, that now leads us to assume somewhat higher population growth in Africa. But it's due to the positive reason that child mortality mm. went down. Isn't it effectively that child mortality is uh, increasing is the same as the uh, fertility rate going down? That's true. It goes both ways. I mean, the question is you, how many uh, young people enter reproductive age? That's sort of the decisive demographic factor. Whether this is now increasing or decreasing due to a child mortality going down or more babies being born or fewer babies born and child mortality going up, that's demographically doesn't make much of a difference. But of course, from the humanitarian perspective, we very much like to see fewer children dying right? and the voluntarily fewer births, babies being born. That would be a, a quality of life choice. Uh, yeah, we would like to see fewer children die. But as far as modeling, what we're seeing is uh, fertility going way down across the globe, right? Yes, for good reasons. And this is mostly driven... Uh, by this process of a demographic transition, which is going from one country uh, to another. It started in France in the 19th century, and it's very closely linked, and that's what our studies very clearly show, uh, to education, and in particular, female education. And the um, Princeton demographer, Ainsley Cole, has very nicely summarized the, the three preconditions for a lasting fertility decline, and the most important being that fertility has to be within the calculus of conscious choice. Right, I agree. It means a couple of women need to move from a fatalistic attitude, where you say, I have as many children as God gives me, to something I want, three or four or five, or whatever yeah. the number is, but it's a it's a conscious choice. And then, of course, it would be to be economically advantageous to have fewer children, and there need to be acceptable means for bringing down the fertility. I'm sure you've read uh, Malthus. Yes, very well. <laughs> Lots of Malthus. <laughs> so Malthus 
talks about all the many different ways the different countries of the world back in his time controlled population. Now, Malthus believed in limits. He, he talked about the means of subsistence. And so one of those, the mechanisms that uh, the, the population was controlled, if I can use that hot button word, is the decrease in fertility, having fewer children. And that, that was considered a more uh, humane way to do it. And I think you rightly connected that to education. And I know demographic transition theory connects increased quality of life with higher education, with the smaller families, with, again, the leveling off of the population, not with the decline. Yeah. Nowhere in demographic transition theory do you have a collapse of the population. Yeah, But you have the connection there, which I think is a very good one, with increased welfare leading to better education, leading to better rational choices. And here's where I think it'd be really interesting to model what women are making this decision based on. It's probably not based on the food supply. It's probably not. There's not a whole lot of shortage, especially among the people that are educated. And yet the women who are educated are having fewer children. And I could voice my opinion, but I'd rather put it as a question to you. Yeah. Why are women having fewer children now? Well, let's first go back to Malthus because the discussion always goes back to him. And I think Malthus, his model was very intelligent, was very elegant also, and really started much discussion. And for that reason, in many respects, he's called one of the fathers of demography. Uh, but he was very pessimistic and unrealistically pessimistic on two points. The one is he didn't expect further technological advances. So he predicted famines, that just simply didn't take place. He predicted all, all kinds of things because he did not believe in the enhancement of food production. So, and the other, he did not believe that people would voluntarily restrict family size. So what he called the preventive check. He had this famous statement that the passion between the sexes will never diminish. It was for him proof that people would always create babies. What he did could not think of is as something like contraception, that people still have a passion for each other and have sex, uh, but yep. this does not reside in a birth. And that is sort of, that is this uh, important transition. And it brings me to your second part of the question. If couples, but in particular women, start to sort of more abstract thinking, which is very closely related to literacy and uh, generally taking more control over their lives. Then you move from this rather fatalistic attitude that we see in most traditional societies. And still, if we uh, ask some rural women in uh, in Niger, for instance, who are illiterate, there has been some service uh, showing, and they ask them, how many children do you want? They think it's a stupid question. I have as many children as God gives me. Now, uh, with this uh, cognitive transition to planned fertility, uh, indeed, uh, people start planning, and then education opens up new opportunities in life. You have choices to go out working to make your own income. So for women in particular, it's the opportunity cost for staying home with their children rather than earning their own income. And then it is the, the threshold of finding a, a birth control methods. And this is very much culture dependent. In some countries and cultures, such as in Japan, the demographic transition from high fertility, let's say five, six children, to low ones below two, happened virtually all through abortion. In other cultures, abortion is taboo, and it's been like in Europe, it was mostly uh, 
abstinence or coitus interruptus or some of these traditional methods. Before then, in the 1960s, the contraceptive pill came around. So it's the, the availability of acceptable means of limiting family size is also a necessity. Now, depending on what of these three factors you are pushing for, like the, the family planning community and the reproductive health community, they much emphasize the availability of, of contraceptive methods and services. Uh, the economists look more at the cost of children, and then people who are more interested in sort of the cultural or educational development, they emphasize the increase in rationality and planning of your life. Thank you. I think it, this is a fantastic opportunity <laughs> that I have to talk to you because you're so knowledgeable on the subject. And I do know that there have been interviews surveys with women asking them why they chose the size of their family. And I don't, I don't remember. I think I'm going to give you some anecdotal data. So I'd, I have to go back to the Guttmacher Institute and look at what the actual numbers are. I, I hate to go on the record with anecdotal data, but I think what it was is that it's too expensive to have a child was one of them. And one of them was, how could I possibly bring a child into this world? Referring to climate change and the dire predictions that are there. So now I'm on the record and yeah. now I have to go back and check to see if that's what they Well, are. these answers really uh, vary a lot and depending on uh, the culture and the country you're talking at and what stage of demographic transition they are. Um, it, it's true that the in the countries that still have high fertility, like most African countries, it is yeah. this, this transition from a fatalistic uh, to a more controlled fertility that makes the main difference. And then next comes in the uh, availability of, of contraception and these economic arguments. And of course, that is why consistently in urban areas, you have lower fertility rates than in rural areas. It's not only the education differences, but also the cost of housing, which limits your family size by your budget. And also the opportunities for women to work outside the height, uh, which gives her other things to do than just focus on on raising uh, children. Now, uh, this yeah. fear of uh, climate change, and this is a very European, if you want, most postmodern or possibly North American phenomenon. And they, also some of my colleagues have done in-depth studies on this, and um, it, it's likely sort of a, a rationale given by women who don't want to have children. Anyhow, and now it's a convenient way to say they don't want to have children uh, because not they are selfish, but because they will care about the environment. But really, when you ask uh, a, a person out in the street whether an additional baby born is going to be good or bad for the world, I mean, every reasonable person will give you the answer. It depends. If this person is going to be a criminal, it will be bad for the world. If he is a genius or a politician or somebody moving the world into the right direction, of course, this is an important child to have. So this is, it makes all the difference who this person is, what are the capabilities, rather than just how many numbers there are. Yeah, no, I don't want to disagree with you, but it sounded like you were second-guessing the answers. I mean, if women say they are not having a child because for economic reasons, I would take them at their word. Yeah. I mean... If what the, well, I want to, yeah, go ahead. I've had all these questions coming up and I've, I apologize for interrupting, but the conversation, I didn't want to interrupt it. 
But I do want to get back to something that we were talking about earlier about limits. And it felt like there was a fundamental belief that was different between the two of you of one of them is there are these limits and the other is that we can over, there may be limits for other species, but not for humans. I was going to come to that too. I'm going to combine that with also when I think of limits to growth, I mean, limits is in the title, but there were, I don't think that they said that there's a limit. And it felt like if you have too low, and also this touches in with Malthus, is that in one regime, there's not, like if you, you think of a world with very little non-renewable resources, we might run out and pollution would stop because we're, we, we can't produce any more pollution. Another regime, which I don't think Malthus could have imagined, was we, if we have too much, then we run into problems from too much pollution. And that there weren't, ex- I don't think of it as there being exterior limits that we're bouncing up against so much as in one way we run out of things and another way, it's not that there's an external limit, but we can't get beyond certain population levels. So for Malthus does talk about that. He doesn't explicitly say pollution, but he talks about the the poverty and the horrible standards of living, and he, he lumps it in one term called misery, and misery is one of the feedback effects of a growing population. Just to, just to put that in. But let's, I mean, we, we have lots of data and empirical evidence. Now, I don't think we should stay at this level of, of general yeah. ecological models. Let's go to the food thing. I mean, there has been a very careful food carrying capacity study already done in the 1980s and 90s uh, at my institute uh, that very carefully looked at the soil composition in most parts of the world. And uh, if I remember correctly, for instance, Sudan is an extremely fertile land for major soup swap. They said already with intermediate agricultural inputs, so not high-tech, but really intermediate agricultural input, which includes some irrigation and sort of stuff that is built sort of early green revolution technologies. Sudan alone, the territory of Sudan, could feed one billion people. Now, uh, they are having increasing mortality because they kill each other in civil war and other things. So these are the real problems of humankind, not uh, that Sudan is, uh, Sudan is reaching a billion population and uh, so our real limits are much more in the human relations and getting our societies organized than in this absolute environmental limit. And to me, I understand that those those are part of limits to growth, that uh, we can't separate those things. Oh, yeah, you, you can connect violence to shortage of food. So there's a, you can model that too. But so my question to you really is, does DTT model population decline in any way? It seems to me that uh, demographic transition theory models a plateau effect, but it does not allow you to predict population decline. This was the early demographic transition thinkers that thought that, and it was reflected was in the early UN population projections up until about 2010 when they changed the system that it, ultimately all countries would converge to replacement level fertility. And they also assumed that life expectancy would stop increasing. And if you look at the history, they at first assumed it would, in every country, stop increasing after 75 years of life expectancy. Yeah. As reality increased more rapidly, they said on 78, and then moved it to 80. And now, so the, the reality was always more positive in terms of life expectancy increase than the upper ceiling. And also with fertility, they, because not all countries converged to replacement fertility, it had to be changed, but it was a politically 
convenient view of all countries in a way uh, moving towards stability. And at the end of the process, nobody would increase, nobody, no country would shrink, and everybody would live in harmony. What we are seeing is that in no country of the world, the decline in fertility has stopped at the so-called replacement level, because these processes that, I mean, this is a highly artificial level, this uh, 2.1, that go below, and in, in many countries, it's gone very much below. I mean, I've been in Junai, Korea, where the birth rate is at 0.7, one-third of the replacement level, and the government is, is in full alarm. The prime minister was speaking there and talking about the extinction of his country. Yes, there are good reasons. It has to do with the changing status of women, uh, women being educated, but at the same time, having a very conservative traditional family role, so a woman has to make a choice. Either she pursues her career that is appropriate to her education, or she marries and stays home and uh, just be an obedient housewife. And of course, not surprisingly, more and more young women choose the first option over the second option. And that's why uh, fertility is so low in Korea. So you said that maybe that that's the old demographic transition theory. Is there a new one? And in, in the new one, can you have a decline? Yes, yes. I mean, that's what we, I mean. I've written this advanced introduction to demography, a textbook where I talk about cognition-driven demographic transition a transition going well below replacement level. And that's what actually most of the, that's the UN projections, the World Bank projections, our projections all assume that world population will reach a peak mm-hmm. because there's still momentum and in Africa it's still growing a lot. But before the end of the century, it will start declining and could even go back down to uh, 3 billion, which is the dream number of some ecologists by the end of the next century. I looked at those projections and I looked at what they're doing with birth rate and those projections and it, it didn't make sense to me. For instance, you see, you know, birth rate, as you know, dropping dramatically in the last decade or so. And then for some reason in the projections, it goes back up. And I go, well, why do they do that? Why do they decide? And I, I have a hypothesis and it's that they're kind of aiming for something. They're saying, well, population has to go up to nine billion by 2070. Therefore, we have to project that birth rates will go back up again. Yeah, That sounds really cynical, I know, but I can't think of another reason why you would just suddenly turn the corner. There was no proposed something that would happen in the next five years that's going to turn birth rates around. Well, there is a technical reason, and then there's a substantive assumption. Technical reason is that assumptions are usually made in terms of the total fertility rate, which is the sum of age-specific fertility rate. And that is affected by something that we call a tempo effect. Like if women are postponing birth, if the mean age of childbearing is increasing, then the total fertility rate for some time is artificially depressed because fewer births fall into one calendar year. Also, women have the same number of births over their lifespan. Now, this postponement cannot go on forever. Once the mean age of first birth reaches 30 or 32 it can't increase much more, right. also for biological reasons. And and then this tempo effect comes to a natural conclusion. So if women are not postponing anymore, uh, then yeah. this artificial depression stops and the birth rates recover, the total fertility rates recover, even so women still have the same number of births over their life. That's the technical reason. I know. I could tell you 
I'm aware of that. And if I showed you this plot, you'd be hard pressed to tell me that that that's the explanation for it because it doesn't, it doesn't show it as a, as a demographic wave. Yeah. It shows it as, as something asymptotic that it's going asymptotically to replacement value. As you know, replacement value, there's nothing magical about replacement value. We don't gravitate towards it, right? Yeah. I think that's what you were saying. Yeah, but none of the uh, currently dominant population projections that I know of assumes that uh, fertility will go back up to replacement level. I mean, the UN assumes some point 1.8, and we assume 1.7 as a, a convergence point because, uh, I mean, we uh, there's also this theory that there's an overshooting of the fertility decline. And at least until recently, the Scandinavian countries gave a good example. They had, um, they were very modern in any sense, almost every woman working outside the house, high education levels, and they tended to have a fertility level of between 1.7, 1.8, and 2, because it was easy for women to combine work and family. Yeah. And that sort of, many people assumed that once countries develop uh, in the way that the Nordic countries have do it, that would by itself uh, result in some recovery of fertility level. That was the dominant thinking. Now, recently, these uh, Nordic countries had seen uh, st- steep fertility declines. Finland went from 1.9 to 1.4. Norway went down as well significantly. And nobody really understands the reason. There's one hypothesis, because no, the social laws, nothing has changed yet. The only thing that has changed is the massive increase of social media use that this somehow impacts on the changing uh, lifestyle of people and uh, the relative value they place on having children rather than uh, communicating in social media with their friends. And could we not argue that social media is a multiplier of education? Yeah, but why would it then uh, in a highly educated uh, country uh, within uh, less than a decade have this massive decline with no conditions changing? Well... If you ask me, I would say they're more aware of the state of the planet. I mean, that's what I would say. You're saying that climate change is a thing of Europe? I have to disagree because uh, you spoke about Sudan. The Sahel is drying up. The Lake Chad is disappearing. They, sure. They're feeling climate change directly, much more directly than those in Europe. So it's not just a thing of Europe. Yeah, I want to jump in here for a second. Mm-hmm. When we're talking about climate change, some people, when they say climate change, imply not just the change in global temperature, but also things like aquifers being depleted, fish stores being depleted, pollution. Are we talking about the same thing to make sure here? Are we are we talking about climate change only meaning change in temperature, or are we also including all these other things? I'll speak for myself. I'm talking about it much more broadly and not just about climate change, but just general ecological change, including water depletion and loss of fish stocks, soil depletion, all of the above, because- yeah. I like to model things in the aggregate. <laughs> and Wolfgang? Well, I also agree. I mean, the loss in biodiversity may actually be more dramatic for future human well-being than the, the climate change. So it is all these ecological changes that matter. Yeah. Yes. And although, you know, those people in the Sahel may not be aware of global temperature changes and loss of ice in the Arctic, they're certainly aware that it's harder for them to find water and that their cows are dying. So they, they feel it directly. So, Chris, I feel like you've asked Wolfgang a lot of questions. Yeah. Have you been learning? or Is there coming together or mutual understanding on this different... It feels to me like there's a different belief as to whether there's limits pushing down. 
Well, the, you know, we're in different areas academically, so we have different academic worldviews. As a biologist, I think about the environment having feedback effects on humans. I also, you might think that I put down humanity in general because I treat us like animals. I do believe that we are subject to all the same laws as other animals on the planet, and we are case-selected species. And Wolfgang, you have stated explicitly that you do not believe that humans are subject to the same laws as other animals. Well, no, of course we are are subject to it, but we do have a cognitive capacity to create, to develop technologies that animals don't have. Uh, Being subject to the same laws of nature, of course we we are part of nature, we are part of biology, there's no doubt, but we do have cognitive capacity that goes beyond or the other species. Don't you agree? Right. I agree that we have mental capacities. We have the capacity to develop technology that's far and above any other animal's capacity. But I also have to say, as a physical scientist, that we are subject to the same laws of physics as all the other animals. And in this case... It would be created to deny, yeah. Yeah. In this case, I'm just simply saying that although, yes, we can push technology we can't increase the amount of land on the planet. We can't increase the amount of water. There are there are hard limits that we can't change. And effectively what we're doing... Yeah, I agree entirely. We can increase the efficiency of agriculture tremendously, like drip irrigation instead. Of, I mean, that's just, you can't just increase... The exactly what I was going to say, in fact. All we can do is more efficiently extract yeah, the Earth's resources, and it's in in a sense pushing us to the limit faster, and that's why uh, when I put that into the model, I lead to the conclusion that we're going to have a population collapse soon, because when you extract more from the Earth, you degrade its abilities. It's uh, to to recover that uh, capacity. For example, non renewable resources such as oil are used to create food. And they are disappearing. So uh, it's it doesn't make sense that we have a static carrying capacity as long as we have non-renewable resources such as oil. Because when that comes out, the carrying capacity is going to drop precipitously. And I don't see that in your model. I don't see that. Yeah. Well, can I ask, when you talk about a population collapse, do you mean a collapse due to increasing death rates or declining birth rates? Because that is all, it's behaviorally, and it's a very different story. So what is the story in your mind? In my mind, those are the same thing. It's a decrease in the population number. And whether that's in declining birth rates or increasing death rates is a matter of our choice, collectively as a whole. And also our choices regionally. And I don't model I don't break down population to regions, but I recognize that the way that population can go down can be different between different regions. Some are going to sit back and and just be, you know, fall into what Malthus calls the forces that lurk in the rear, famine and war. Yeah. And that's naturally going to happen. More educated societies are going to see the decrease in the birth rate, and you're not going to see a, a great loss in quality of life as population goes down. Because as the population shrinks, the burden on the environment decreases. Basically, the wealth per person goes up because the number of people goes down. Yeah. So that's the best I can give you. I can't tell you, you know, that's my answer. It's whether it's decreasing birth or increasing death is going to be decided regionally. Yeah. And then, of course, there's migration. I mean, I was just been listening at the demographic 
forum on Thursday, the president um, of Bulgaria saying that this is sort of an existential threat to his country. Bulgaria had nine million people in the change around 1990 when the communist was abolished. Today, they are down to 6.3 million, and projections show they will decline to less than five, and by the end of the century, even less than three, going from nine to three, and national population essentially disappearing. But this is mostly due to out-migration of Bulgarians uh, to the rest of Europe, but also very low fertility and rather high mortality rates. So these three factors always uh, play together, and then depends on their, their balance, what is the outcome. And of course, the, the goal is to have go through the demographic transition and have ultimately declining uh, population, because I believe also a world with 3 billion well-educated and therefore healthy and wealthy people will be better off than a world of 12 billion poor and desperate people be harmed by climate change and being much more vulnerable. So the task is to to shrink with increasing well-being and people being better off. In that view of the future, we definitely agree, no contest. However, we have, I think, a fundamental view different here and that you think that we have the ability to reach for that goal, whereas I think we don't. I think the population changes are something that's imposed on us and not something that we can choose. We can choose how to do it, but we can't choose not to decline. I really don't think that's uh, a, within our abilities right now. So what I'm curious about is if there's a difference of opinion here, is there a way to resolve it through not just debate, but numbers? Is there a path to, I don't think it'll happen in this call, unless I'm missing agreement that's there. But is there a way to, I mean, to me, it seems like include more demographics in, in Chris's or include more of Chris's into Wolfgang's. But is there a way, is there a mutual understanding that I'm missing or is there a way to resolve it? Yeah, it's a matter of scientific analysis. Like here in my instance, the other, we have an agriculture and biodiversity program. They have 70, 80 top scientists working in very detail what is the uh, the composition of the soil, what are the agricultural methods, what is the rain pad, sort of assessed uh, in, in the, using the best scientific tools quantitatively with the best models available. What is the real danger of uh, changes in temperature or rainfall on uh, the future food production? And this can be assessed. I mean, science has progressed on this since the 1970s. And uh, sort of whether or not this will result in increasing death rates is a matter of an outcome of these scientific models. So you know then some of the predictions. I don't know how precise they've been, but I do know the the global, the overall tenor of their predictions is that's going to go down, not up. What is going down? Food production worldwide. And the reasons for that are loss of aquifers, loss of soil fertility, and uh, also increased uh, weather instability. Yep. And also part of that whole thing is the, the unavailability of additional arable land. Yeah. Unless, of course, you start deforesting more. Yeah. Well, the, uh, the, the answer really depends uh, a lot on the, the technological levels. If you take sort of the Israeli, I mean, they live in one of the driest parts of the world and still exporting lots of water in the form of oranges and fruits that are producing with extremely efficient uh, underground irrigation systems and, and so on. I mean, if if only 
half as efficient methods would be introduced in other parts, let's say, in Africa. And so, of course, the productivity could uh, go up uh, significantly. So it, it really depends uh, sort of what the, the technologies you use are being applied in this. And that's why we have this range of scenarios. And you're right, some of the scenarios show actually a decline in food production and others that have higher technological inputs and innovations, they, they show that there's no problem. I would love for this conversation to go on for hours because this is supremely fascinating to me. And I, I'm like holding myself from jumping in myself. Okay. But we are running out of time. And I propose each of you, if you're up for it, to state if you've learned anything, if you've reached new agreement or new understanding, or if you'd like to talk again or something like that. But to wrap up, Wolfgang went first before. So how about Chris going first now? Oh, well. Unless there's one last thing that you can cover in, in like two minutes. Yeah. No, I admit that most uh, social scientists and including the demographers, we tend to think in business as usual and continued trends. And, and that's where we really have to learn from biologists that we need to do more, be more serious about explicitly taking the limits into our uh, calculations, into our paradigms. And uh, that's where we still, the demographic community as such, can still learn. And this is true for most demographic projections, I would agree. I think from my point of view, what I think is the, the limits of my kind of all biology-based model is I'm, I'm dismissing the capability of humanity to respond to, to change. And I, I didn't put it in the model because I'm treating humans just like any other animal. And I, I think I could make an improved model by including some new model for how we respond to changes in the environment. I want to thank you both for participating here and for the conversation. I said it before and I'll say it again. It was like hard not to jump in, but it was going so well. And I've learned a lot. I wish we could, there's a lot more to learn. But Chris and Wolfgang, thank you very much. Well, thank you so much for pulling us together, Josh. Thank you. And we'll pleasure to discuss. I look forward to being in touch with both of you. Okay. Yeah. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodek.com slash donate.